Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we ponder issues of economics, politics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Today, we're going to dive deeper into a phenomenon we only touched on in prior podcasts, the concept of the prisoner's dilemma. Prisoner's dilemma is a term that a lot of people have heard of, but in reality, many people don't really understand what it means. I know I certainly fell into that category before we started doing this podcast. So, uh, Seth, why don't you take some time and explain to people what a prisoner's dilemma actually is? You know, it's actually an amazingly simple game theory framework, but it describes an incredibly powerful phenomenon. So it's based on a story, and the story goes something like this. Imagine two men are arrested for a crime that they allegedly committed together. So the police arrest both men simultaneously, bring them separately to the police station, hold them in separate rooms so they're unable to communicate with each other. And then the police and prosecutors, right, they believe the men are guilty, but let's assume they only have enough evidence for like a lesser charge. So they have each man in a separate room and they give each of them the exact same choice. They say to them, if you and your accomplice both confess, you'll each get two years in prison for doing the crime. If you and your accomplice both stay silent, you'll each only get one year in prison on the because we can only prove a lesser charge. But if one of you confesses and the other one doesn't, the one who confesses will get no jail time at all. And the one who doesn't will actually get three years in prison. <laughs> wow, that's a very complex situation. And what it implies is the optimal decision for the group, for the two men together is for both of them to stay silent. And the reason it's a dilemma is because each guy has to make the decision in isolation from the other and not knowing what the other party, his partner, is going to say or do. That's where the dilemma comes from. It's not clear at all what a reasonable, rational person should do. And with some form of coordination or communication, if it were to exist, right, and they trusted each other, then undoubtedly each would just stay silent and they'd get the one year each. However, in real life, each man is probably working worried that the other one will betray him. So in an effort to minimize his downside, meaning avoid that big three-year sentence, he's likely to opt to confess. And then so will the other man. So the result is that both men confess and each get two years in prison. So effectively as a group, they've reached a suboptimal result, collectively getting four years in prison where they otherwise collectively could have gotten two. So even though they're entirely rational decisions by each prisoner individually, it was irrational for the pair. Our listeners should keep in mind that the dilemma part of the prisoner's dilemma looks at the best outcome from the point of view of the participants, the prisoners. It does not consider whether or not the larger society in which they live might think that there is a better outcome morally or economically compared to what they as individuals might choose. And I realize this may be hard to follow on a podcast, so if someone wants a visual representation of it, you could go to our website at theboilingfrog.net, and we have a resource where we lay out a matrix of how all this works. It sounds like the lesson to me of The Prisoner's Dilemma is that individual and group incentives diverge. They're not always the same. The, the group incentive is not necessarily the same as just adding up the individual incentives. That's true because often individuals are better off when they're part of a group by acting in a way which they otherwise wouldn't likely do because of lack of communication or trust. So the optimal decision for an individual shouldn't always be made by the individual. Sometimes delegating the choice up to the group works better for the individuals. Yeah, it does seem counterintuitive. But to bridge the divide of the prisoner's dilemma, there's really two possible solutions, two approaches. One option is to have that communication and trust among the parties in a group. Yeah, but you know what? That's sometimes or even often difficult or impossible to do in real life. 
No, that's right. So there's a second approach, right? And the second approach is to have a mandate somehow that individuals act in a certain way. This seems like yet another example of the inherent conflict between humans as self-centered animals and humans as social animals. And Mark, examples abound for the, of the prisoner's dilemma. And once you learn about it, you can't stop seeing it everywhere. And it involves yet another new psych term that you've taught me. It's called the Bader-Meinhof phenomena. It's like when you buy a new model car, you suddenly start seeing that model everywhere. Or when you learn a new word, you start seeing it everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But in terms of the examples, I mean, think about it this way. Uh, refusing to follow any law, even like speeding, for example, is in some way a prisoner's dilemma because you are defecting from the group, right? And the societal impact we create by having those laws or traditions or norms or what have you. Interestingly, people end up rationalizing that kind of defection, their personal defection, simply because they believe others are doing it. Oh, I'm going to do it because everyone else is doing it. And that makes it seem not so bad to themselves, so they feel justified in doing it. A classic example of that is cheating on one's taxes. The IRS data book says that they believe approximately 10% of Americans believe it's okay to cheat on their taxes. And we have to believe that that's at least in part fueled by a belief that they believe others likely cheat. So that's an example of the prison defecting from the group. And the group, all of the taxpayers, would clearly be better off if nobody cheated because we'd be able to lower everybody's taxes to compensate for the stuff that wasn't being collected. We'd have lower deficits, we'd have lower enforcement costs, all sorts of benefits if nobody cheated. Another classic example would be uh, doping in sports. Lance Armstrong admitted that in part, the impetus for taking performance-enhancing drugs was his belief that everyone else was doing it and the competitive disadvantage that he would have if he didn't do it. That logic of everyone else is doing it, so it's okay for me to do it, also includes a lot of other things like hoarding. That's right. Think about bank runs. You know, I know for pe most people who are alive today have never seen a bank run because there really hasn't been one since the Great Depression. And that largely exists because the government stepped in in the 30s with the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, to basically say to citizens, you will not be harmed if you stay in the group and leave your money in a commercial bank. They've essentially reduced the risk from other people's potentially defecting from the group and taking all their money out from the bank. And a more recent example, which unfortunately we are all intimately familiar with, was the run on toilet paper that broke out at the beginning of the COVID crisis. There was no rational evidence whatsoever that the existence of this virus was going to require anyone to use more toilet paper than normal. And at least early on, there was no reason to believe that the supply chain for something that basic was going to get badly disrupted. But as soon as people started hearing that other people were hoarding toilet paper, they changed their behavior and they started hoarding. The net result? Everybody was worse off. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's really hard to imagine all of us sort of trusting each other not to hoard in, in those type of circumstances. Another example of individuals involved in a prisoner's dilemma, I would argue, is private gun ownership. Because individually, one could argue that there is a benefit to owning a gun, although, quite frankly, that's a bit debatable and, but, and a, definitely a topic for another podcast. But regardless of your view on that, the result is as more and more people buy guns, collectively, it becomes a real destabilizing force in an otherwise law-abiding society with all kinds of serious negative consequences. You know, unfortunately, the U.S. is a clear example of this. Um, and sadly, there's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy element to it as well, as more and more guns seem to be needed simply because we think everyone else has one. Not to sound like a broken record, but another example, I think, of a president's dilemma is the housing crisis that we're currently in in much of California and certainly in the area that, of California that we live in. 
Most communities like having taxes from commercial development in order to pay for public services without having to raise individual taxes, but they also all want to maintain their current residential character. That sets up a situation where a community, at least initially, is better off by foisting the need for housing off on some other community because the employees at a commercial development have to live somewhere. So I may want to see more housing, but I don't want it in my community. That behavior, which we all know to be nimbyism, is an example of a community defecting from the larger community within which it exists. So it's important to keep in mind that the players in a prisoner's dilemma don't have to necessarily be individuals. They can be larger groups, other groups, corporations, governments, communities as a whole. So, Mark, let's discuss why do we care about prisoner's dilemma? Let's start with my favorite area, of course, which is economics. As we discussed in our first podcast, the free market economy is based on this very simple principle that each of us acting in our own personal economic self-interest and making rational decisions collectively generates the greatest cumulative wealth for society. But as we've just discussed and shown by some of those examples, prisoners' dilemmas, which I think are quite common in the economic realm, cause individuals to make rational decisions which aren't optimal for the group, which means in practice we aren't getting as much out of our market capitalist economy as we could. This is why in that same first podcast, we discuss things like public goods and the fact that it's inefficient for each of us to provide you know, many services to ourselves. We don't provide a, you know, a private police force or a private firefighting force, for example. Yeah, but the richer you are, the more likely you are to be able to opt out of public services, which because of the way our political process works, which it seeks to represent individual preferences, can actually undermine public services for everyone. And that's a great segue into why prisoners' dilemmas play such a significant role in how our government works. It's why, for example, we make it illegal to steal. We have laws in part to balance individual and community interests that are part of that dilemma. And that's what we discussed earlier, the second solution, right, the mandating solution to how you can break a prisoner's dilemma. And we do that all the time in government. And that's how we manage things like public goods and and externalities. But it's also important to keep in mind that it doesn't have to be a government. Sometimes the mandating can be done or governed privately, right? Essentially some sort of agreed cooperation. The example that comes to mind uh, immediately for me is Motion Picture Association of America rating. There's not much of an incentive for an individual movie producer to put a rating on their own movie, but collectively, this privately managed system that enforces those ratings clearly has benefited the entire industry. This part of the discussion is really interesting to me because I would say that laws themselves, which while they clearly involve mandates and punishment and whatnot, are also in part managed privately in a way because most enforcement in reality is people simply following the law on their own initiative, at least most of the time. Well, Mark, we've been discussing prisoners' dilemma so far as if they're all bad. And in most of the cases we've shown so far, they are bad. But sometimes we may want to have a prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner's dilemma actually works in our favor when the actors involved are bad actors. So sometimes the prisoner's dilemma can actually be a tool to use and not just the problem. Yeah, like with real prisoners and criminals, That's why the police interrogate suspects separately, because it breaks down their ability to share information and it makes them get stressed over whether or not their colleagues are going to sell them out. 
This also happens on a larger economic scale with cartels, OPEC, for example. OPEC tries to reach an optimal pricing decision for them as a group and tries to prevent individual countries from defecting from that group. And the result of which is creating higher prices than normally a free market would otherwise dictate. So we like it when once in a while a country will actually defect from OPEC and increase their individual oil production, which in turn can lower prices for the rest of us. And by the way, that defection doesn't have to be outright. Instead, it can simply be a matter of acting a little less in the interest of the cartel and a little more in the interests of a particular customer, which is why in dealing with cartels like OPEC, you start seeing things like diplomatic tools and maintaining good relations with the OPEC member and offering sweet deals on defense equipment and whatnot. All those kind of tools get used. You're trying to establish some form of quid pro quo with an individual member of the group to ease them away from always acting in the interests of the group. In this example, the prisoner's dilemma is actually serving capitalism by <laughs> increasing competition among suppliers. So let's pivot to something that unfortunately is totally top of mind for all of us. Uh, I suspect we wish we could get away from, and that's vaccinations and COVID-19. By definition, when you're talking about a disease like COVID-19 that is highly communicable and can pose a very serious health threat to hundreds of thousands of people, the action of any individual directly affects a lot of other people. It's not a transactional environment like in market capitalism where you could get all the affected parties together and they could negotiate a mutually acceptable outcome. And you know what's most puzzling to me about this particular example is that when we talk about prisoner's dilemma, it assumes all parties are acting completely rational as individuals. So in the case of getting a vaccine against a potentially deadly transmissible disease, one would think that for a rationally acting person, there would be a complete alignment between the individual and the group incentives. And therefore, there'd be no prisoner's dilemma. Everyone would just choose to get vaccinated. But... Unfortunately, misinformation and the boiling frog nature of what our politics has gotten into has created for many people the perception that there is a real downside. And as a result, based on that perception, they have created a prisoner's dilemma when there really isn't one. Yeah, effectively, it's a rationalization of an irrational thing, because if you think there's harm to you of getting a vaccine, then you want everyone else besides you to get vaccinated. And unfortunately, with something like COVID-19, when you have even a partial defection from the group, there are deadly consequences. Ironically, though, most of those consequences, given the existence of the vaccine, are actually affecting people who are defecting from the group. But we have to keep in mind that there are some people who, in this case, must defect from the group, like those who are medically ineligible or otherwise ineligible to get the vaccine, like small children right now. So the point of vaccines is, in part, to protect those people who have no choice to defect rather than the people who simply choose to defect. It's bigger than just vaccines, too. There are plenty of other COVID public health mitigations that are also examples of prisoners' dilemmas. Mask wearing, distancing, limitation of certain activities, you name it. It's very difficult for communities and their governments to balance the harms imposed on individuals with these things against the harms to the broader community from not mandating certain behavior by individuals in the community. I mean, think about masks for a second. The harm to the individual mask wearer is minor. It's, it's almost trivial. It's more of an inconvenience. And the potential benefit to the community is significant. Look at another one, though. Keeping children out of school, in that case, the harm to the individual family is pretty significant. And the community may be harmed as well in the long run, too, by having a less educated population. But the health benefits of closing schools appear to be relatively minor. 
Of course, Mark, this has happened before COVID. There was even a few years ago, there was a measles outbreak in California in 2018, 2019. And that was another example of a bunch of people who clearly thought the risk was low to not getting vaccinated themselves, so they defected from the group. But the solution has always been mandates, right? For the last century, we've had vaccine mandates for all kinds of dangerous communicable diseases. Historically, and I have to admit, I was stunned to learn this, there's always been resistance to vaccine mandates, even for horrible diseases like polio. It took years for the polio vaccines to become commonly accepted by most people. Well, and Mark, you know, there's a reason both you and I have a scar on our shoulder, right? And our children don't. It's because the smallpox vaccine was mandated up until around 1970. And and guess what? We eliminated smallpox in this country, just like polio and, and many others. Yeah, you know, just as a personal aside, I have to tell you, my entire life, every time there's been a new vaccine for an illness that comes out, I always rush to get vaccinated because I'm like, hey, uh, the risks are really low. The stuff is well tested and I really don't want the disease, whatever it is. In a rational world, we wouldn't need vaccine mandates because rational individuals would see that their own individual benefits are aligned with the benefits that the group is going to get and they would simply make the right decision. But because so many people aren't acting rationally, we've effectively created a prisoner's dilemma in this case. And, and since there isn't a lot of trust right now among people and between people and their government, the only solution out of this manufactured prisoner's dilemma is a vaccine mandate. And it's frankly, in my opinion, shameful that we didn't do this universally last summer when we could have. Just like COVID created a real prisoner's dilemma and offered some people the opportunity to manufacture even more dilemmas, those dilemmas themselves aren't always static or don't always exist for all time. It also points out when you look at the history of them, people always tend to fight over them, trying not to be made a member of a group that didn't exist or that no one realized existed. Yeah, that reminds me of the auto industry and specifically how car engines would pollute. Because historically, auto manufacturers had little incentive right, to improve engines to reduce air pollution. Therefore, it was completely economically rational for each of them to ignore that issue in favor of just building the otherwise best car at the lowest price. There was no particular incentive for them to essentially create a new group of our metaphorical prisoners that cares about pollution and the public good associated with it. And that's true because any individual company would have been in a relative negative competitive position if they went at it alone. But when everyone is forced to meet a certain standard by the government, by the community, then all of a sudden you get rid of the relative advantages and disadvantages that those individual companies are struggling with and fighting over. And in fact, you can create incentives for innovation within the industry, which at the end of the day improves the environment, improves the opportunities for the companies, and it improves public health. And because the argument by most industries against these types of regulations is always it'll increase costs for consumers. But interestingly, the result of these types of regulations often is both the improved public good, as well as sometimes even better products at lower costs because of the innovation and that collective investment that had to be done by all the players, which then benefits all of the players. And you see it in arenas far removed from national industries like auto manufacturers. You see it on a local level where regulations can have the same kind of effect. I know, for example, in San Carlos, there was a debate for quite a while about the value of making the downtown business area more attractive for customers. Individually, it may not pay off for any particular business to invest that kind of money to make themselves stand out that way. But collectively, having everybody be required to meet certain appearance standards brings more overall business to an area. At the end of the day, that helps both the community and those individual businesses because they suddenly have more customers. 
Mark, what I think we're saying here is that the lesson is that when individual rational decisions collectively don't align with the public good, the action to mandate a behavior more consistent with that public good not only can make each individual in the group better off, but can also spur innovation to increase opportunities for those businesses, effectively confirming that old adage, necessity is the mother of invention. Seth, that reminds me of something I learned in studying evolutionary biology years ago. Many people tend to have a overly simplistic view of evolution, and they view it solely as competition among individuals to adapt and survive and reproduce better than everybody else. But the reality is that evolution and the competitive pressures that drive it occur not just at the individual level, but they occur at group levels as well, and certainly between species. So the the evolution of social behaviors and social dependencies has actually helped many species, humans included, to be able to do more than their individual evolutionary competition as individuals would ever be able to accomplish alone. Right. And we see this in all kinds of species. I mean, I think of apes. They have a social contract, don't they? They they have to groom each other, protect each other. And some of that seems to be done just by cooperation inherently, by instinct. But some is also done by enforcement. The senior member of the clan, the silverback, whoever it is, who's making sure that everyone in the group is behaving in that way. So it shouldn't come much as a surprise that humans, also as primates, but is also one of the ultimate social species, can't separate any individual's welfare from that of others. I mean, we as humans have to appreciate that all of my actions affect someone else, my accomplishments are not just my own, and my fate is tied to your fate, Mark. Which also serves to illustrate yet another old adage that everybody is familiar with, no man is an island. And yet much of our culture, and particularly market capitalism, as we talked in our first podcast and have referred to several times since then, often emphasizes exactly the opposite. That's right. As we discussed, the free market is a great starting framework for allocating economic resources among an incredibly diverse group of producers and consumers, but it cultivates better outcomes for all when it takes into account the obvious connections among all of these economic players. You can't make decisions about economics without recognizing stumbling over prisoners' dilemmas because they are an example of a perfectly rational set of individual behaviors that are collectively suboptimal. Yes, yeah, so we need to understand and appreciate these connections and make policy decisions that actually enhance both the inherent social contract among humans, as well as bestow better economic outcomes than the free market would provide alone. And along the way, we also have to remember, as we've talked about several times today, we all too commonly end up creating prisoners' dilemmas by manufacturing downside reasons as excuses to not work within a larger group. So, in practice, what can we do to better manage these kind of issues? Well, I think it's, it's really hard, frankly. I mean, first and foremost, anything we can do to encourage stronger social contracts and trust in experts in particular, and frankly, being more critical of those who seek to undermine all of that. And, you know, we did talk about mandates, which are communities uh, imposing their collective will on individuals, which is what communities need to do to survive. Those are ways of dealing with prisoners' dilemmas. But I think it's also important to remember that beyond that, we really need to emphasize the value of teaching critical thinking skills and having everybody do critical thinking as much as they possibly can. That's to educate people on what a prisoner's dilemma actually is, to teach them to recognize when they exist, and probably just as important, to get them to avoid creating fake prisoners' dilemmas by manufacturing stuff that's not really there. And businesses themselves can think beyond their individual short-term interests, which I realize is hard because there's lots of incentives to think short-term. But 
their long-term interests, even individually, are often best served when looking at their role within a larger group. You actually see it in the trend toward the environmental, social, and governance standards for investing. And I'm sure that will be a topic for a future podcast as well. Well, this has been a great discussion, Seth, but I got to tell you, I'm now really concerned that I'm going to be stumbling over and, and confused by prisoners' dilemmas popping up everywhere I look. Well, that's a cross you'll have to bear, Mark. So I guess in order to not make it harder for you, maybe it's time to sign off on this podcast. This is Seth. And Mark. Wishing you that you resolve all of your dilemmas, prisoners or otherwise, in life. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. We'll see you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net. Thank you.